0: This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics in Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring
1: Hello, everybody. I'm Morris Ardwin, co-host for the podcast Queer Voices, which is found under LGBTQ Studies on the New Books Network. In this episode of Queer Voices, I talk to Joel Lafayette Fletcher III about his book With Hawks and Angels, Episodes from a Southern Life, released in April by the University Press of Mississippi. Welcome to the podcast, Joel.
2: Good to hear. Good to be here.
1: (laughs) Great. It's nice to have you here as well. Uh, Let me tell the listeners first a little bit about you from the book jacket. Joel Lafayette Fletcher III served as an officer in the U.S. Navy and lived abroad for a dozen years. He co-owned a language school in Florence and worked in the field of educational exchange in Paris and London. For the past 40 plus years, he has been an art dealer specializing in American and European art of the 20th century. Now a little bit about the book itself. With Hawks and Angels, Episodes from a Southern Life chronicles the fortunate life of a man born in the Cajun country of Louisiana and his interaction with the three distinct parts of his home state. The swampy laissez-faire south where he was born, the red clay hills and piney woods of northern Louisiana where his relatives lived and exotic New Orleans where he was educated fletcher examines his childhood on the campus of what is now the university of louisiana at lafayette where his father joel lafayette fletcher jr was president for 25 years to his time as a student at tulane university the book follows fletcher through his service as a naval officer when he began to admit to himself accept and explore who he really was to his life in europe and eventually virginia where he now resides with hawks and angels intimately explores the life of a young man growing up in the racially segregated deep South while coming to terms with being gay at a time when being out was not socially acceptable. Based on his personal journals and recollections and filled with the unique characters he met along the way with Hawks and Angels is the culmination of writing that for Fletcher was a way of holding on to an important part of his true self that for many years he felt compelled to hide. Why did you write this book, Joel?
2: I think part of it was uh, that not uncommon urge, of, especially now that I'm approaching the end of a long and eventful life, to leave some proof that I was here. And writing a memoir is a better option than scratching your name on a boulder in Yellowstone Park. Right. <laughs> For many years, I kept a journal, and writing a memoir seemed like the next logical step. I began my first journal when I was 20 fresh out of college and a newly commissioned ensign in the U.S. Navy assigned to an aircraft carrier that was in a dry dock in San Francisco. My motivation, though I may not have been fully aware of it at the time, I think was an attempt to hold on to who I really was while forced to pretend to be someone I wasn't. Although I made some attempt to be ambiguous and conceal Some of what I wrote in my journal about the adventures I was just beginning to have as a gay man, much of it was certainly incriminating. I don't know if I was being courageous or simply taking foolish risks, but uh, if I had been discovered to be gay at that time, it would have meant a dishonorable discharge and a dark cloud over the rest of my life. I uh, continued to keep a journal as a way of keeping a grip on things, of putting into words and writing down what was really important to me, what I really thought about things, and chart who I actually was. And even though a significant number of my journals were stolen from a locker in Florence, I still have most of them, and they were a great resource when I began my memoir. Another primary source for my memoir was a collection of letters that intelligent and interesting friends wrote me when long before email and texting it was common for friends to write letters to each other describing what was happening in their lives and i've always kept letters i have a rather huge collection of them that will eventually go to the louisiana research collection at tulane to be included in my archive that already contains the letters the eight letters written to me by john kennedy Toole, the author of the great comic novel the confederacy of dunces i was also gifted with a bizarre kind of memory that's always remembered unimportant things that most people forget but that provide vivid details for my writing i must have inherited it from my father who was known for this prodigious uh, wow. memory and although coming to terms with being gay is an important part of my story telling it was not my main reason for writing my memoir and i don't believe that was the most interesting part of it Coming out a story that's been told by so many of us so many times. I uh, I suspect most of my readers will find much more interesting the descriptions of the remarkable people I encountered and observed and the amazing events that I witnessed over a long life, uh, among them desegregation the of the South in the 1950s, the devastating flood in Florence in 1966 the student uprising known as the events of May in France in 1968. I hope my readers will find my life as interesting to read about as I did to live it. Uh, coming out was really merely a background for events that were much more significant.
1: Well, thank you. What is the, um, when you decided to shape this into a book from all that material and that great memory, uh, which I admire because uh, I had a similar uh, experience when I was writing my memoir, a lot of details, and I was very good at also keeping journals. But Now that you're going to, at the time that you were going to put this as a book together, what was your writing process or your collection or your curating process like?
2: Uh, I wrote a number of the essays in the book a long time ago, whenever I had time to sit down and do it. Then for almost 30 years, my partner and spouse, John, and I led a highly peripatetic life, traveling all over the United States to exhibit and sell art and usually Twice a year, we went to Europe to buy it. One year, at the height of our business, we were on the road 235 days a year. We loved what we were doing and were successful at it. But for years, my life left me little time or energy to write. Then in uh, spring of 2018, we retired. And John, who's a gifted artist, has had time to work on his own art instead of spending all his time selling the art of others. And I had time to settle down and write something I've always loved to do. I'd written an earlier book, another memoir that was published in 2005, about my friendship with John Kennedy II, the author, of course, of The Confederacy of Dunces. Uh, my book is uh, Ken and Thelma, The Story of the Confederacy of Dunces. It had been very difficult finding a publisher for that book, and I didn't much like the publisher that brought it out. Uh,
1: well, um, that is uh, that you you did t- uh, write about that in this book, um, and that's fascinating because uh, he's such a character, and he's such a uh, not only a, a, a national treasure as a writer for that book, but a Louisiana icon a New Orleans icon. He's he's you know, he was uh, such a, a great character, and that you knew him personally is you know, like just a wow factor as I'm as a reader. <laughs>
2: One of the very lucky parts of my life that i got to know ken and also uh bobby byrne who was the undoubted inspiration for uh ignatius j Riley. yeah but when i when i began to write what became with hawks and angels i was writing it mostly for myself and i really had no plans to try to publish it i decided i really was not up to going through all the difficulties I went through getting my first book published. And I, I planned to send it to the Louisiana research collection at Tulane, where it would become part of my archive of papers about John Kennedy tool. And or I thought some future scholar might find it interesting and at least it would be preserved. And then a friend suggested I send it to university press of Mississippi that publishes a lot of Louisiana material. I had not yet read your uh, wonderful memoir, Stone Motel, about growing up in southern Louisiana, but I had read a terrific memoir by James Nolan, Flight Risk: Memoirs of a New Orleans Bad Boy, also published by the University Press in Mississippi. So I sent my manuscript to Mississippi and was delighted when I heard back from them that they wanted to publish it. And I have to say, it's been a very happy experience. They've been so such a pleasure to work with and The book was announced for mid May of this year, but they hurry things up. uh, So it became available just before the Saints and Centers Literary Festival in New Orleans in late March. which i had been invited to give a reading and serve on a panel about memoir writing and having the actual book there made an enormous, really enormous difference.
0: What what was
1: what did you find uh, in the writing process for this? Uh, What was the hardest part to write for you?
2: Well, writing about my toxic, jealous, homophobic oldest sister who tried very hard to turn our entire family against me because I'm gay. Uh, unfortunately, she succeeded in a few cases, but fortunately, with those people who meant the most to me, love was stronger than the hateful message she spread. Mm. It was very painful to revisit this period in my life, and I I probably experienced a little more schadenfreude than was seemly, when I wrote about the reception after her funeral, which the only food served was a Winn-Dixie party platter. Every (laughs) southern knows how damning that is.
1: Yeah, Uh, that's funny. Um, So what would you like for readers to take away from uh, this book?
2: Well, I would hope that they find it interesting, parts of it amusing, parts of it moving, uh, in a word, that they enjoy reading it as much as I have enjoyed living it and writing about
1: it. Yeah, I think that will happen as, as a person who's read it. Um, the, uh, the the word episodes is in your title. Um, there are many, so many uh, fascinating episodes of your life in this book. Um, is Do you have a favorite or two?
2: Well, I think um, probably ones that describe the happiest times in my life, the ones I like most to remember, especially my years in Florence and in Paris. and probably most of all in London it was a truly magical time when I was surrounded by a group of brilliant creative gay people and finally realized I could no longer live with part of my life hidden. and I made the conscious decision to create a new life for myself in which I would no longer have to pretend to be someone I was not yeah
1: um that's uh that hits home um it would be a good time right now if uh, if you could read uh for a little bit from the book is something of your your choice
2: okay um uh, although i didn't mention it as one of my favorites i'd like to read an excerpt from hullabaloo that i consider one of the key chapters it's about being a fraternity boy at tulane in the 1950s and it was the beginning of my journey toward the person I eventually became. It relates how, for all the wrong reasons, I became a member of Sigma Alpha Epsilon, uh-huh. one of the leading fraternities on campus, and then came to realize that I didn't fit in, that they were really not my tribe. Here's the, Here it is. Okay. I must have first la- <clears throat> I must have first laid eyes on Nick Politas in the autumn of 1953, when we both began our freshman year at Tulane, and were in several of the same classes, but we were not to speak until several years later. I had heard of Nick from his aunt who lived in Lafayette and was a family friend. She had told me about her nephew and said that we must become friends because we had so many interests in common. She had told Nick the same thing about me. Therefore, we both carefully avoided each other until we were brought together in a philosophy class during our junior year. <clears throat> the class was taught, of. What transpired in the classroom can be described as teaching by the egotistical chairman of the philosophy department, James K. Fiebelman. His lectures consisted largely of name-dropping anecdotes about his interactions with famous people. One that I remember began, when Albert and I were discussing the theory of relativity, (laughs) his lectures were excruciatingly boring and Nick and I out of desperation, finally began to talk to each other. Soon, we were kicked out of class for it, and we discovered that we really did have a lot in common, and that is when our friendship began. For my junior year, I decided to live off campus and moved into a basement room that I shared with thousands of cockroaches on Robert Street, (laughs) half a block off St. Charles Avenue, and a dozen blocks from Tulane. Nick uh, was living with his family on nearby Arabella Street, we often rode our bicycles to the Latter Memorial Library on St. Charles to listen to and check out classical LPs. <clears throat> we had long, high-minded conversations about music and literature, shared a number of the same enthusiasms, and to be truthful, were both cultural snobs, proud of our rarefied and precocious tastes that we thought set us apart from the usual too-late undergraduates. <clears throat> Nick's father owned a restaurant on St. Charles Avenue, not far below Lee circle, on a block that was visibly in decline. The Politas Grill was not a fancy eatery, more of a diner, really, with a menu that reflected the Greek heritage of Nick's father. Their house on Oak-lined Arabella Street in the heart of the fashionable Garden District was rather grand, but its double garage held only one ancient Plymouth. I suspect it was Nick's mother, Eugenia who always pushed her husband to live a bit beyond their means, a character flaw she passed on to Ned. <clears throat> Eugenia was very unlike her sister in Lafayette, who was a short, smart, no-nonsense, closeted lesbian who ran the public relations office for the university. Eugenia, her younger sister, was tall, hyper-feminine and highly strong. She was also a celebrated Mrs. Meloprop And Nick enjoyed recounting her manglings of the English language. Once she let out a loud scream while she was looking in the mirror. What's wrong? An alarmed Nick asked. I have a conjunctive eye, she told him. Another time when she was planning a cocktail party, she sent Nick out to buy some agnostic bitters. One summer, Nick and I went with Eugenia and his aunt to spend a day on the beach of Ship Island in the Gulf of Mexico off Biloxi. I was lying on a towel next to Eugenia when a motorboat went by. <clears throat> she raised up off her towel, peered at it, and said, Look, Joel, there goes a the PTA boat. <laughs> a few years later, I was having lunch with Nick and Eugenia at the Grill. A seedy looking waitress was leaning up against the counter chewing on a toothpick. Eugenia, to get her attention, snapped her fingers and shouted, Garçonniere! Yeah! Nick would always do the same thing (laughs) after one of his mother's mal Isn't she marvelous? In the living room of the house on Arabella Street, above a Steinway Grand, was a full-length portrait of Eugenia by a a noted New Orleans artist. It was reminiscent of the 19th century German painter Franz Xavier Winterhalter, famous for his depictions of the Empress Eugenie. After the death of their parents, Nicholas and his brother, Dimitri, donated the portrait to the Louisiana State Museum. When racketeer Edwin Edwards beat racist David Duke, vote for the crook, the bumper stickers read, for governor of the state, he chose it from the works in the museum to hang in the governor's mansion in in Baton Rouge. Nick and Dimitri were amused. Eugenia would have been thrilled. For my senior year, I moved back into a commerce dormitory, but continued to spend much time with Nick. Although I had grown away from the fraternity, I still attended some of its functions and felt its pressures to conform. And I still pretended to others, if not to myself, that I was heterosexual.
0: Slash NBN 50 to get 50% off.
2: The autumn of my senior year, still trying to become what I was not, I began to date a Newcomb co ed from Cincinnati, largely encouraged by Nick, who liked her and thought she was very intelligent. She was also the great grandniece of Ralph Waldo Emerson, whose essays I had just been reading in a course on American Transcendentalism. When I brought Ellen home to meet my parents, my maiden aunts were also visiting, perhaps on purpose to inspect my new and seemingly serious girlfriend. When I introduced Ellen to them, Aunt Frances, who had a PhD in English literature and taught it at Louisiana Tech in Ruston, grasped her hand and said, my dear, you look just like Ralph Waldo Emerson. (laughs) I doubt that Ellen was pleased, but at least she did not react as my high school girlfriend, Rhonda, did when she met Francis for the first time. Francis demanded, my dear, do you know who lived in Dove Cottage? Rhonda burst into tears and ran out of the room. (laughs) That one was a Kappa Alpha Theta, and even though she had joined when she attended another university before transferring to Newcomb, my fraternity brothers were silently and some not so silently disapproving. SAE simply did not date girls from that sorority. Undeterred by the scorn of my bros, of whom I was seeing less and less. By the time we graduated that spring, I had given Ellen my diamond SAE pen, and she considered us engaged. We cuddled and smooched a lot, but never went all the way. Not unusual for those puritanical and hypocritical times when much was, much was made of girls saving themselves for their wedding night. I was secretly thankful for the excuse. <laughs> Upon graduation, I received an NROTC commission as an ensign and was assigned to an aircraft carrier based in San Francisco, then as now a city of irresistible gay temptations. Although I kept up the pretense of being a butch young naval officer, when I was away from my ship, I began to have a few good gay adventures. A surprise visit from my fiance ended our relationship. I explained nothing, but my lack of interest was obvious. Baffled and in tears, she flew back to Ohio. For the three years that I was on active duty, I corresponded sporadically with Nick, but had really lost touch with him by the time I was honorably discharged in the spring of 1960. He showed up in San Francisco some months later with an old address he had for me. It was the apartment of a by then ex-lover he knocked on the door and found a gathering of people who knew me. When he said that he was looking for Joel Fletcher, he was surprised to hear some of the places they suggested that I might be found. When we did manage to connect, he told me, you were my last straight friend. I've been telling people about you for years. Hmm. Our friendship was rekindled on a more honest and solid basis. There was no reason to keep secrets anymore. We remained close friends until his death more than half a century later. And little by little, I discovered that I was not the only S. a from Tulane who was hiding his private life. A few years after graduation and out of the Navy, I was showing an English friend the sights of New Orleans during Mardi Gras. One afternoon we squeezed our way into the orgiastic crowd at Dixie's Bar of Music. After a few minutes, I spotted, I spotted Buddy Bass, who, during my senior year, had been our eminent archon, the fancy title borrowed from ancient Greece, given the president of SAE chapters. He was talking to someone at the bar. I panicked and told my friend, we've got to get out of here right away. When he asked why, and I told him, he laughed and why do you think he's here? In the end, my English friend went back to Lake Charles with Buddy for a post- a romantic post-Carnival week-long affair. And among all those clean-cut and handsome young SAEs, dating Chi Omegas and striving to be BMOCs, there must have been others in the same dark closet. Mm-hmm. Through the years, I've come across a few, some of whom even married kaios and lived, as best they could, their double lives. I consider myself to be one of the lucky ones who managed to escape and live to tell the tale.
1: Well, excellent. Um, that leads us perfectly into the next question I have for you, which is uh, you had a recurring struggle with your double life and the mores that put you and so many others in that predicament. Tell us about that struggle.
2: The worst time was when I first started coming out while I was also in the U.S. Navy and I knew that if it were found out, it would be disastrous. And I, I spent far too much time and energy worrying about that possibility, time, and energy that would have been much better spent, uh, applied to more positive pursuits. I realized that the principal reason that I decided to live abroad for a dozen years uh, was that it provided a way of staying far away from a society, and especially my family, whose expectations for me would have been difficult to resist. It was a way of avoiding those expectations instead of coping them, facing them. But I don't regret for a second those years in Europe. They opened up a world to me that I would never otherwise experience. And by the time I decided to return home, both the world and I had changed a great deal. It had become much easier for a gay man to remain close to home without becoming a pariah. Nor did one have to live in a gay ghetto, largely cut off from the rest of society to be one's authentic self.
1: Um, well, the book is uh, fascinating in so many levels. Um, and that, that piece of the story is, is kind of, for anyone who tells it, and you mentioned that earlier, um, similar uh, stories have been told uh, that the struggle with the double life. Um, but it's still heartbreaking um, that it was so recently that that uh, all of this was very much a reality that people lived that way. And and people still live that way today. Um, And you can meet them, those of us who are out. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you can meet them and go, Okay, you can spot them. Uh, They're struggling and it's a sad it's a sad reality for our world. Um, Do you have any final advice for our listeners?
2: That's a difficult question. After a, a long life of receiving advice and much of it bad, I hesitate to offer any, but maybe try to learn from your mistakes. That's the best thing you can do with them.
1: Yeah. Um, there are a lot of people in, who read uh, and listen to the podcast from uh, this network, uh, the New Books Network, um, and people who are themselves academics um, or um, and people who are maybe in a member of the LGBT community, and there are people who also listen, who are exploring, who are learning things, uh, a, a lot younger than, than both of us, um, and they are um, – they're the kind of people i'm thinking uh to to be your authentic self it it was it's much easier now and you mentioned this than it was back in those days um there's a lot of struggles that we had to go through Uh, each generation did a certain part of the lifting uh to get us to where we are today and it's it's happening right in front of us that it's being chipped away at all the time
2: oh that's horrible yeah
1: happening now yeah so um, I appreciate having uh, the opportunity to have read your book, and there's so many uh, really, really nice. Uh, there's it's funny, it's sad. There's uh, it's a thrill in many ways. You have met and, and rub shoulders with a lot of uh, interesting people. Um, and I thank you so much for 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 taking the time to, to talk with us. I hope that when you get out and about on the uh, a, a book tour to to uh, celebrate and promote this book, that you get a nice, warm reception, because that's what the book made me feel like. This is a person I am thrilled to, to now know something of. of. So it's a, it, you've done a beautiful job. Um, Let me remind the readers the title of the book. The book is called With Hawks and Angels, Episodes from a Southern Life, published by the University Press of Mississippi. If you have an idea for a podcast episode on a new book about the LGBTQ experience, please let us know by emailing queervoicesofthesouth at gmail.com. Joel, thank you, thank you, thank, thank you,
2: me. Morris. It's been a real pleasure.
1: <laughs> thank I you. I hope we
2: actually get to meet one day. Oh,
1: we will. I'll get down to Louisiana. Well, we'll
2: come go. down to see us. Well, come to see us in Virginia. Virginia we,
1: first, yeah. But there, yeah.
2: I, by the way, I love your uh, your aunt's recipe for mock shoe. I've made it several times. Oh,
1: good, good, you're good. I I need to make that one of these days soon. I I I forget about these things, but thank you. Um, Everyone, I'm Morris Arduana. Thanks so much for listening. Join us again next time. In the meantime, make sure to let your own queer voice be heard.
0: 18- plus.